And what did you do during that year then? What was advocacy for Magellan? What were you up to? <laughs> well, I suppose it would have broken, like I came home in August, late August. I was sent back to Nigeria by Trokra to assist Trokra in facilitating the application for funding agents to the European Commission, which went ahead. And houses were certainly built with the help of Trokra and the European Commission. They were rebuilt in 10 villages, I think, Trokra took on and did some work there. And the person who could tell you all about that is Mary Sweeney, because she was out there many times. And I used to be so envious of her going out, you know, and she had the freedom to recover the place to some extent. That was... September, October, and then it was Christmas. This memo, or the the military plan to totally upset Ogoni, was leaked as a military memo. And I would have been in contact with Glenn Ellis and Kay Bishop and their film company. In fact, that second visit had many other things in it as well. At that time, Ken had been nominated for the Goldman Award, I think. And he was busy preparing his speech of acceptance and figuring out who should go and all the rest of it. And I was up the road staying in a house owned by Shell (laughs) in their compound. The only person that I could ask shelter from was a researcher from a British university who had been working in the field. But when I got back, they were finishing up their piece of research in a Shell house in the Shell Reservation. And it is very funny, but it's a kind of an offside too, that while I was in her house, the Goni fellas from Mossaball came in and we had chicken and rice, you know, not yards from the house of one of the most senior people in Shell. That is when I was so sure there was no subversive activity. I said, guys, you could sit down and laugh and joke after awful times. They didn't talk about plans or plots or guns. Or, you know, it was just, I, I just was so relieved that I could really vouch that there was nothing subversive in it. And at the same time, Ken was sending up his award speech almost with the demand, read that and edit it and send it back down to me. And I was doing that and he kept saying, don't move from Port Harcourt yet. Don't move from Port Harcourt yet. You've got to bring this message back with you to London, to the Right Livelihood Award people. Yes, the Right Livelihood Award was there and they have an office in London. And then there was a lot of video footage of the military destruction that had to go to Glen Ellis. So I left the country carrying those two things kind of offside as well. I was I was shaking from head to toe with the video coverage and speech I wasn't too worried about. And I remember bending down after the immigration fell had signed something and standing up quick and hitting my head of the yoke that was sticking out and just seeing stars and wonder will I ever get out of this place. <laughs> so I got out anyway and that video footage was the raw material for Delta Force which was such a powerful documentary and a documentary on the military I presented myself to the office in London with the Right Livelihood Award speech handed over there's one letter where it's nothing only a shopping list I'm told to do one two three four five six up to about 20 things I'm to bring these t-shirts I'm to bring that poster all of this is in one of the letters from the detention centre down the road (coughs) 
I did as much of it. I can't remember very much of that. So I did that. And then I knew that the giving of the Right Livelihood Award was coming very soon. So I stayed in our community in London. And without telling anybody, I went off to Stockholm in total isolation again. And that's where AF Gen did me a great turn. The priest who had been the director, probably still was the director, I expressed my wish to him. Did he know anywhere I could stay in Stockholm for three nights? And he came up with an empty flat. And he must have told me where to get the key or what to press. But I went in and I slept in a completely empty flat for the two nights and walked around Stockholm on my own. Now, Ken's family were there and members of Mossop, not all of them. But because I was, again, in my objective stance, I that wasn't my business. My business was a kind of to witness the giving of the award. And I wrote back every detail about that to him, and he refers to that in the letters as well. But that was a very isolated experience, but fair, fair return to AFGN for giving me that place to stay. So that accounted for December. So I was in the hall of the Right Livelihood Award in Sweden and the Feast of St. Lucy and part of the ceremony. There were two or three people getting an award. <laughs> His daughters, twin daughters were there. His son, I think, was there and Ke and Glenn and Kay. But they were like myself. They wouldn't converse either. They were been through to their journalistic. They did their job, got on with the videoing and doing the reporting. So that brought me up. I must only go back to Ireland about maybe the middle of December, late December. Now, I remember the, there was the Agone Nine, but there were many, many others in Agone in prison. And there was at least 15 due before this special military tribunal. Didn't begin until much later in the next year, but they would have been all arrested in detention for that 17 months. After Christmas, I probably started to have conversations with Troker again. And then Glenn must have sent me an email or a letter to say that there was a leaked military document appearing in the Guardian, which in fact was the Observer on the Sunday, the middle of January. And poor me, I didn't even know that the Irish Times didn't publish on a Sunday. And I didn't know that the British Guardian didn't publish on a Sunday. <laughs> I remember being awake all that night because, you know, I've been given a job to do now by Glenn and company. So I went down in the middle of the night to the Yellow Pages in our house in Dublin, brought it up to the bed and looked for the Irish Times, got the telephone number, and this now is the middle of Saturday night. On Sunday morning, woke up. Before I went to check on what I thought was the Guardian, I rang the Irish Times on a Sunday morning, you know, but you see, I thought they published on Sunday as well. And there was nobody really there. They listened to me, put me on to the news desk, never heard of Agoni in their life before, being nice to me, said, well, sure, maybe we'll do a feature article on it sometime. And then I said, well, do check out The Guardian. And if you need me, I'll be available until one o'clock. But really... Uh, after that, I'm not, and I was just praying I would not be available at all. So I went over to the Berkeley Court Hotel to buy what I thought was the Guardian, to find there was no Guardian, <laughs> that it was an observer. And luckily it was the observer. But I began to say, oh, such a bad mark against me. 
for the Irish Times that I couldn't even get the newspapers right. And I said, I'm sure this will scuttle everything. I had very little hope of anything. So I went over and about half twelve, delighted with myself that I hadn't received a call. Suddenly the phone goes. Could you be here before one o'clock? And we'll send a taxi or take a taxi and we'll refund. And of course I'd never been in a newspaper house before. So I arrived anyway at the Irish Times up the stairs on a Sunday. And I walked down a big long strip down the middle of the newsroom. And a man with a beard came towards me. And he said, your name is McCarn. I said, yes. And I somehow would associate the Irish Times with an Anglo-Irish element. And he said to me, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm from the north. I know that, he said. Well, where are you from in the north? Fermanagh. And again, if I know that too. And then he said, what part of Fermanagh? Well, he said, I'm Sean McConnell. I'm the agricultural correspondent. But I'm from your next parish. But I'm on the news desk today. So it was just heaven to discover him on the news desk. And he was very sensible. He said, you know, this is in his mind, not in my mind at all. I didn't recognise the enormity. He said, I want you to go away for 15 minutes and think about it because this is a military document, a leak of a military document. And he said, then we want to consider, would you be ready to have your photograph in the paper? But I want you to go away and think about it first. So he gave me 15 minutes to think about it. And then I came back and I just had one of those other moments. What the heck, you know, let me go for it. And he said, you know, your life may never be the same again after this. It was again one of those moments when I said, OK, if this is the cost. In as far as I could understand it at that moment, nobody would ever see an outcome. So the next morning was the 16th of January. The extract is there and uh, I appeared somewhere in the Irish Times photograph and then none leaks military document. It was a f an awful heading on it anyway. And Throker, of course, was delighted. I mean, I was now becoming an accomplished campaigner. And the phones began to ring. It just, I don't know what, but it was like a kind of a miraculous happening. The interest of Ireland in Agoni, of which it had never even heard the word before. It was extraordinary. Now, at that time, I had Throker backing behind me, and they have a press unit, so they probably realised they were going to something very important and interesting. So would have been very supportive with their press offices. <coughs> and that was the 16th of January. And one of the most potent phone calls, because I began to get phone calls, was an extraordinary phone call. It was from A. Frank Kerwin, who had been a former Catholic priest of St. Patrick's Missionary Society, a young man who had worked in Agone. And he just was so moved by the whole story. He left Agone not because of anything to do. He loved the place, he loved the people and later he had changed his mind and gone to do some other training and he just was so absolutely relieved and thrilled to get a place in the Ogoni story. So he was a great friend of Joe Murray who was in charge of AFRI. So AFRI now got interested. I was invited to speak at the AFRI seminar in Kildare in February of that year. So that was January. By the 2nd of February, I was speaking in Kildare. And a week after that, we formed Ogoni Solidarity Ireland. So that began a distinct campaign in Ireland. 
very much backed by Trokra, very much backed by Afri. In that month, the Nigerian province of OLA wrote and said, we can't really have you back here until this military dictatorship is gone because of your press work. And now I was three or four months into my sabbatical, so what was I going to do? Work with the asylum community in Amsterdam came up. We had a group working there. And then again, because really I've had so many fortunate breaks, a call through my provincial from the Irish Missionary Union looking for a justice officer. And I said, that's it. I knew immediately I didn't stop. So that wasn't until the following September. So I would have continued the Goni Solidarity Ireland. It was a tremendous campaign because there were other people involved who were trying to save their lives. So it was a real campaign, of which there are many, many AFRI conferences, many other conferences where I would have done lots of speaking stuff. So then in September of that year, I went to work in the Irish Missionary Union. There were two things that I had to say, rightly or wrongly, I will continue with the Ogoni campaign and I want to work on a Northern Irish issue, which was reluctantly accepted because I think there is no real conception that justice work is hands-on work. It's about signing a petition about somebody or some community suffering miles away with which you have no direct contact. My sense right from the beginning that I had to be in the middle of the community that's suffering for me to be able to speak for them in my voice, not their voice. So somewhere along the line and the training that I got and the reflection that I did, that became a very strong plank for me to work on. I think it was just with a certain hesitancy and luckily some tolerance that I was allowed to continue to work on the Agoni issue. And then I took the Northern Ireland Parades issue, turned out. A link through AFRI as well led me that way. But that was September. Even when I went into the IMU, the trial had begun of the Agoni Nine in Nigeria. And the letters continue. Well, they finish on the 21st of September when I take up that new job. There were no other letters after that. But I would have heard what was happening. And some of those letters described what was happening at the tribunal. So I was in justice work at a justice desk when November would have arrived. I was new to my job. I was out attending all kinds of meetings on a whole variety of issues. But all the time I would be getting messages from Ogoni. So I knew the trial was going on. I was telephoned two or three days beforehand that they expected the outcome to be announced and the outcome was hanging in 10 days' time. I still had to go to work every day and do my work. And really, even in Ireland, other than in Trokra and in Afri, I couldn't really talk about it either. It was a threat again. So even in the IMU, I couldn't really talk about it. So it was like an extracurricular activity that I was engaged in on my own terms outside. And it was that way that the 10th arrived. Luckily, Trokra was running a tremendous campaign. Body Shop Ireland was in it as well, and Amnesty International was in it. So, yeah, it was. It, you had the experience of the build-up of a campaign, and it was the month before that we got the Nobel nomination for Ken, which had come 
through a meeting on the 17th of March, St. Patrick's Day, an Ogoni person came to Ireland for the first time, one of the fellows from Massa Barica, who's mentioned in the letters. He came to Ireland for the first time. He missed so many flights that the timetable that we'd made just was obliterated. But I still went near to midnight, and was still very dangerous, to Belfast for what I didn't know. So the only person I could ring up the next day was Mairead Corrigan. Why? Because I'd seen a letter from her in Ken's files in Lagos. They had met at that conference at the UN in 1992. And she took us out to lunch and she said, what can I do? And she thought it out and she said, you know, I might try to get him a Nobel nomination to bring attention to his plight and to get the support of so many other laureates. So she had been doing that over May, June, July, August so that in October, Ken Jr. was invited to Belfast to receive that nomination. But in spite of that, everything, the following month then, was the execution. And I would have been alone. I don't think there'd be anybody from the IMU. Uh, There might have been sympathisers from other groups attached to the IMU at what we thought was a vigil outside the Nigerian embassy. And Paul Durkin spoke at that, and he commanded... The lady ambassador, who was a great friend to Ireland, in fact, but in this situation, all ambassadors in the European Union were expelled and sent back to Nigeria on the foot of that death. So we went there. I knew in the morning that they'd been executed at 11 o'clock. But I, even in the I knew I couldn't, you know, it was just awful. People were so terrified of it. Couldn't talk about it there either. I remember having these awful headaches, you know, and probably my blood pressure was sky high, partly because there was nobody to talk to. So anyway, that happened, and it was the people from London. It was a journalist who rang me. I I never to this day do I know who it was. And he just said, all I'm asking you to do is to go to Sky News. He wouldn't even tell me himself. So I went to Sky News. But I had a feeling since about 11 o'clock that morning that it was all over. I just remember saying, I must check this out with myself to see was my feeling right. Because I think that sent a message two days before there were special people who do the hangman's job and they had arrived in Port Harcourt. So it was only 10 days from the sentence being pronounced. There was no case of appeal Ken wouldn't even take legal help. He said he didn't want state help, but couldn't be disinterested. So there's only 10 days, and I don't think he ever saw anybody of his family or anybody. I would have reckoned that the priests and the religious people went in on the morning of the execution, because now it was in the prison, so all the rules of prison held. And I guess it was an Irish priest who went in there to to be there at the last time, but he probably couldn't speak ever, and that's not a problem for me. So that was the end of that story, but the campaign continued until the Ogoni 920 were released, some of them a year afterwards. But the the campaign went on in a very active form. Ogoni Solidarity lasted for a good five years after that. Then it kind of broke up because there was no great connection. between. Well, we had Khomeini Fama, we got him a scholarship to both Kimmage and to UCD, and he did Masters there. He was the only Ogoni in Ireland for years. He lived with Frank Kerwin, who gave him house and bed and breakfast for all those years and then he went back and slowly the movement got into further difficulties themselves shell never got back they began to fight and maybe some of their other 
aspects of Ogoni Bill of Rights that suffered from different splits over and over and over again. Trocra remained supportive for a small number of years. The way we kept ours going was Ogoni Solidarity Ireland became the Ken Sarawiwa Memorial Seminar. And it was in that line that we went to Aris. It was under that. Just to finish, yeah. will we cover that piece around Ken and what happened afterwards around mm. the, po- you know, the politics of Bones' story? In traditional cultures, the notion of burial is very sacred because this execution by hanging was of felons, if you like. Maybe they should have been buried on the prison compound, but nobody knew where they were buried. But what I discovered was that people did know where they were buried, but they were under threat of being shot themselves if that leaked, so it didn't leak. Eventually, it was known that the bodies must be somewhere, but it took maybe into the 10 years before there could be negotiations on finding out where the bodies were. Well, to search for them first of all, and then to find them. So the people couldn't wait for that. So they had what is called a symbolic burial. And Ken himself had been very particular about his will. And he said he was to be buried in a simple grave on the edge of his home village. There was a decision to have a symbolic burial. And for the symbolic burial, they built a grave and a little house over the grave that you can walk into. And they had an enormous outpouring of grief for him in a burial without a body. And they would have put down items that were precious to him into this grave. So that was a huge. So when I went back in 2002, February, March 2002, with John Park and a Methodist minister, very quietly... The people that we had gone to see organised a visit to Ken's father, who was still alive, and to his mother, who was still alive. So we were taken by kind of enormous cavalcade to their house, and we met Papa upstairs, and we condoled with him, and then we went to see the mother downstairs, and she wasn't well at all at the time. The father was very elderly at this stage. And, you know, he saw his son in terms of the passion story. He saw a man like Christ who had given his life for his people. That's the way he understood it. Well, I think they were Anglican Christian. It's a Methodist Christian area as well. We had a long protocol hall upstairs, little speeches, little everything. So he then came downstairs with us and he led us to the grave side. And we were allowed to be there for about 10 minutes. So that was tremendous for me. Then another few years passed. And it would be very incumbent on Onswiwa as the head of the household to find the body. Because Ken, his son, was still very young. at the, Well, he wasn't that young, but he was much, much younger. So Owens had to begin to use political contacts. He was now in Canada. He went to study in Harvard for a session to update his medical skills. And there he met the son of the current president, the civilian president, who had been a military president, but now Abbasanjo. And he kind of appealed to that young man to appeal to his father to try to get the bodies recognised and taken back. 
So over a long stretch of time, that began to happen. There was some revelation about the location of the grave or set of graves close to the boundary of the prison wall. And I suppose there were little hints given here and there by those, because this was a long time now, this 10 years more. The Physicians for Human Rights, again, were brought. Owens had contact with them. So these extraordinary NGOs, they're so valuable in these times of very poor governance. And now you had nine graves and nine bodies. And now the families began to struggle among themselves because some said if we wait until a proper resolution, then the state will compensate us for the loss of our loved ones. But the Weewas were determined to go ahead, so they went ahead with whatever uh, families would come with them. So it's all described in the book about the, the Physicians for Human Rights came the first time. There was disagreement among the families and it went away again. A few months or years later, they came back again. And a good number of the families allowed DNA testing to happen. They found the set of graves and they weren't a bit sure who was in what grave. And they only found eight graves and to this day that's all that has been found. Owens was in a distraught condition because he had gone through all of this. So he kept away from it largely. So then the final day of the exhumation happened. There was an attempt to at least decide on Ken's identity. They had to take bones from all of the eight graves to bring back to Canada for DNA testing. So it's just gruesome to think of it. These are packed into little carrier bags, you know, and the man who was exhuming had them in his possession. He felt he had found Ken's body, but he had to cross-verify without letting people know. So he rang Owens and he said, had your brother got a ring? And Owens wasn't sure whether he had or he hadn't, he couldn't remember. So they rang Maria, the wife, and she said he never had a wedding ring. It's not our tradition to wear a wedding ring. So that seemed to be a loser. And then there was a belt. And again, Owens said he never <laughs> knew what kind of a belt Ken wore because he always wore a loose shirt over his trousers. And then there was a watch with a black plastic band. And Owens was horrified. He said, my brother would never have a cheap watch like that in his possession. So this conversation was going on in Ken's house, you know, that was like an Owens was there. And suddenly the man from the Physician for Human Rights happened to look up at a photograph of Ken on the wall and he had his hand out like that and there was the ring sitting on his finger. He still said nothing. He told them to bring down other photographs and they did and the ring was there again and again and again. And you notice how little we notice, you know. And then the belt didn't add anything but the watch, when they turned the watch round, it was UN Convention on Human Rights in Geneva, or Conference on Human Rights in Geneva, 1992. So that was the watch he was wearing, because it seemed to have meant something to him. So that was how the body was identified. So since there had been a public burial, they didn't make any great issue of the second burial, although they called all the family again 
And that's beautifully described in the book as well and very much described in his daughter Moo's book about them, you know, about Owens calling the daughters to get their father's bones ready for burial and her feeling of, you know, handling her father's bones because she was young when it happened. So that was very moving and that book has only just been published so she touches upon that in her visit back.